0: let me ask you please to bow with me to pray Father again we are at our very core because of how you've wired us to be a gathering worshipping people and so I pray that on this day as you have promised us that your word would not return empty, would not return void but rather God it would accomplish its purpose its purpose that we are a people who, who go out from here with great joy knowing you. And so I pray that you would fulfill that uh, among us. May we, as a people, think rightly about your truth, that which you have given us to believe, and I pray that we would handle it in a way that meets with your approval so that our lives, when tested, will be approved by you this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. turn please to 2nd Timothy in chapter 2 2 Timothy chapter 2 I want to read verses 14 uh, through verse 26 hear the word of God remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers do your best To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing his seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house Ready for every good work, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Many, many years ago when I was uh, teaching uh, economics, I was looking for a new textbook one semester. And and, um, I always felt guilty, frankly, because our students in the sophomore year had to purchase this encyclopedic textbook. And it was a two-semester book. In those days, it was expensive. I can't imagine how much they cost these days. But they were very expensive. Uh, and they, for most of our students who were taking the course, they probably had very little use after that unless they moved to a city like Lawrence that had a small phone book and they had small children and they would need this thicker book uh, to set their children on uh, for dinner. But uh, other than that, it wasn't very helpful. And um, so I was looking for a book. I came across a textbook once that was about 200 pages. And I thought, wow, they'll love this. Ah, it was called The Economic Way of Thinking. I even liked the title. It was much better than a book called The Principles of Economics. So I like that. But as I was reading the preface, the author made this statement. He said, Beware. Short writing makes for long reading. And I said, They'll never get this. <laughs> Because short writing does make for at least long thinking, you see. And I I always have that in mind when I read through the scripture. And you may say, well, it's a long book, but given its subject, God, and our relationship to him, it's really rather short, I think. And especially as we come to some of these epistles, we find they're quite short. Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Timothy and and, and Paul had this great relationship. You get the sense there's a lot going on here. These words between the two of them uh, mean a great deal because of their closeness. I know that when I get certain letters or emails or whatever from close friends, they don't necessarily have to be long because I know what they're saying in, in in a brief period of time. When I read it, I think upon it long because... I know that person. You get the sense that this is happening here. And so I say that only to tell you there's no way I'm getting through all of this that I read to you this morning now, you remember that Paul and Timothy are close, and T- Paul is calling Timothy to come to Rome. Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. Persecution is happening, perhaps the harshest persecution that Christians have known. Paul's a criminal for being an apostle at this point, and so there he is. He's inviting Timothy, this timid young pastor who's been in Ephesus. He's inviting Timothy to come and, and, and to share, as Paul puts it, in Paul's suffering so you you get the picture of what he's being invited to he's in a sense being invited into the lion's den if you will and so Paul's saying I want you to come here and and he's giving Timothy then in this letter we trust courage encouragement but courage to be able to leave Ephesus and come and share with Paul you get a sense as we get to chapter 4 someday in this letter that a man named Tychicus is coming, and he's probably going to be the interim, at least, pastor, or maybe the pastor at Ephesus after uh, Timothy leaves. So Paul's made preparation to send Tychicus, and so he's going to come, and, and Timothy then is going to go. and He's going to share, then, in the sufferings of Paul. So let me quickly give you the outline, I think, of this passage. It'll take us a couple of weeks to get through it. First point this, that... That, that there's great danger in Ephesus. We know that great danger in Ephesus and the danger that still exists in the community even after Paul's first letter to Timothy and even after Timothy having been there for quite some time that there's, there's false teaching going on. That's the, that's the danger. Right? Now the protection, if you will, uh, the counter to that false teaching is right teaching. That requires the right handling, as Paul puts it, of the word of truth, of the word of God, the right handling of it. And so here's the danger, here's the protection. And then thirdly, even though uh, they lived, we live, even though they lived in the midst of this false teaching and and, and these false teachers swerving, as Paul puts it, from the truth, causing the destruction of some, even though we live, they live in that context, there's great hope because God has put a sure foundation. There's a foundation, God's foundation, that's standing. And that sure foundation, that's standing, the church, is sealed by God. That is owned by him. And it has a seal. And it's a two-fold seal. First, that God knows who are his. Second, that All those who name the name of the Lord will flee from iniquity. And so that's assurance. Yes, God knows those who are his. They will never depart. In fact, those who know him will be able to tell who they are because they're the ones fleeing from iniquity. This fleeing from iniquity, which he later calls cleansing themselves, uh, has two parts. The seal has two parts. This cleansing from iniquity, if you will, running from iniquity has two parts. What we call repentance and faith, running away from ungodliness and running to godliness. And then finally, Paul ends this all by saying, in a sense, don't fret or fear those who are against us. Remember, it's God who grants repentance. So that's the sense of it. Now, as we come to this, we know the problem in Ephesus. We've gone through this before. This problem in Ephesus where there's those who are, as he puts it, swerving from the truth. But, but it's interesting here. Paul kind of gets a little more detailed. Not much, but a little more detailed. He encourages them. He charges them about not quarreling about words. And so you get a sense that, that this is kind of a nitpicky situation about particular words, taking particular words, pulling them, as we might say, out of the context, what they, what they were meant to mean, and causing them to mean something else. One of my seminary professors always said to us, he says, now remember, the text can never mean what it never meant. And you go, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. It can never mean what it never meant. And so we, we, we can't stray from the context of the text. Don't just grab stuff out, throw it into your life, and say, well, this is what that means. Because you have to go back and say, well, could there have been anybody who first read that who said, oh, yeah, that's what that means? You say, never mean never meant and we can fudge a little bit here and there on some perhaps obvious prophetic passages or something like that but by and large general rule good rule of thumb the text could never mean what it never meant and so Paul seeing the great danger of these false teachers says to Timothy even though you're coming before you leave what you now need to get into place what you need to get your house in order in Ephesus is that you need to remind them of these things and he says, I want to give you this charge. And when he says this charge, really literally means this solemn warning. So he's giving them a solemn warning. He says, Because this is everything. As we've said so many times, everything begins, everything's founded upon what we believe to be true. There's a sense in which that's true of everybody's life. We live out, we live out what we believe what we really think is true what we really think the world is all about what we really think is valuable and all of that we live that out and, and, and so Paul says uh, you've got the truth if you deviate from the truth if you swerve from that truth that truth which is about Jesus in whom is summed everything you see all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him so if you swerve from that truth then everything else will be wrong. And so, he says, be careful. And the way that we communicate that truth is through words. And so, he says, he says, he says don't, don't, don't quarrel about words. It doesn't do any good. It only ruins the hearers. He says, even if you continue to play uh, with these quarrelsome ones, it will just ruin the hearers, just confuse people. Notice how he puts it. Verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. You see, it's the result of truth is that it's to lead us to godliness. This swerving from the truth will will lead us to ungodliness, not being able to please God. These are not the things of God. And he says it's going to spread like gangrene. Now, there's some things which spread that are probably good to have spread, right? Gangrene isn't one of them. And so when Paul says it spreads like gangrene, he says it spreads like that which is infectious and that which kills. He says this is what happens with this. And so he says you've got to nip it in the bud. Don't even go there, Timothy. Don't even go there. And he says look at what's happened that's already upsetting, really overturned, would be an also another way of saying that. Upsetting, overturning the faith of some. Now, he gives a bit of a hint here. He says, now there's some, Hymenaeus, you may remember him from First Timothy. Paul gave him over to Satan. And another one named Alexander, who comes up at the end, perhaps, of Second Timothy, who causes Paul some great harm. But Hymenaeus seems to have another partner in heresy, Philetus. And, uh, and you say, well, if t- Paul gave... Hymenaeus over to Satan in his first letter, in that first, why is he still there? Well, that's because heretics just don't always leave. Trust me. Right? It's it's still in the context of church life are those who teach that which is false and even been judged falsely, but yet still they carry the title, still they continue to be on television. But uh, so Hymenaeus is still, still around, and he's teaching that, as he puts it, that the resurrection is already coming. He you say, well, how can that be? Who would believe that? Well, there are all kinds of spurious, spurious notions about the resurrection. But, but it could be, in some sense, that he was simply taking that which Paul had taught and pulling it from its overall context. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that we actually have died and been raised, spiritually speaking. With Christ, as those who are in Him, we've died with Him and been raised to newness of life. And that's true, spiritually speaking. But, But that doesn't mean that the resurrection of the body has come, that the consummation has come, that this is it. You can say, who would believe that? Well, you know, the whole health and wealth gospel, as it's called in our culture, has its very guts in this notion. That it's all done. And so, if you believe, if you're truly a believer in Jesus, and if you really believe and have the strength of faith, then you'll always be healthy. Or, if you have the strength of faith, you'll always prosper materially. You see, that's the sense that it's already come. It's already done. It's already all here theologians call that an overly realized eschatology which i know sounds like gangrene to some some sort of infectious diseases but it means that that, that, the eschatology that which is to come that that, 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 did you think it's all here right now no there's more to come Paul speaks of the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of the body occurring at the coming of Jesus. And this resurrected body will be incorruptible and it will not be diseased and there will be no dying and there will be no pain and all of that. But but that's still yet, still yet to come. If you miss this, then A, you're going to be a very frustrated person and we can see and I have seen and we've experienced and some of you have experienced the devastation from that sort of swerving from the truth because a day comes when illness doesn't go away when disease debilitates when people die and you go we prayed they wouldn't how did that happen or when things are going fine financially and then all of a sudden they don't go fine and you think What's wrong with God? What's wrong with my faith? What's wrong with our relationships? He lied to me. I'm supposed to have material prosperity, and yet it isn't near. What do we do with that? So it can upset the faith of some. Paul says, don't go there. Avoid that. And there are other sort of bits and pieces we could pull out. Uh, we could pull out you know, those who say that the word grace, since it means unmerited favor, since we can't deserve it, then that, 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 that it means that, that it doesn't matter how we live once we've received that grace. We can live any way we want to. And Paul dealt with that in Romans 6. He said, no, that's stupid. Because this grace comes, you see, if we we believe that grace has come and we've received it and it doesn't matter how we live, then, then we miss the value, we miss the benefit of being able, as Paul writes to Titus, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. You see, it comes to us and the joy of it, part of it, is that we're able to overcome these things. And if you teach it doesn't matter, then we live in the misery of our sin when we don't need to. Those who say that God is love. Yes, indeed he is. But but that doesn't mean there isn't judgment. And that doesn't mean that there isn't eternal punishment for those whose sins have not been forgiven because they've not turned to Christ. And, and those who say, well, since God is love, that means then that everyone will be saved. No, 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 no. So you missed that idea. Those who take the word equality and say, well, if we're all equal in the eyes of God, then that means that there's no differentiation between men and women at all in the context of the roles in which they have in life. No, that isn't true. We have some now who say that sexuality can be disconnected from gender, Some who say that well marriage, what that means is is faithful love between two people, so it really doesn 't matter if those two people are two men, two women or a man and a woman you see, and so we can take these points and out of their context and misunderstand them and so Paul says to Timothy don't go there, stick with that, which is true, you see, stick with that which is true that 's of what 's Value, because these things are devastating. Notice the safeguard, verse 15. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. There's a sense in which we're wired as human beings to desire approval well, we simply are kids really whether they know it or not kids really desire the approval of their parents workers really desire the approval of their bosses Husbands, the approval of their wives, wives of their husbands. I mean, it's just the way we're wired. But but you see, the ultimate one to approve us is God. And and there's this sense that this word approval means once tested, you, you prove yourself in such a way that God says yes. And we have built within us this great desire to hear God say, my good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. There's something in us where we're wired for that. We really desire to hear God say that. Now we know that in and of ourselves, we're to be rejected by God because of our sin. We know that. We get that. We understand that. And we know that in Jesus, we have his approval. That's true. But we also desire in the course of our lives, as we're tested, as our faith is tested, we're wired because of the grace that's at work within us. We're wired. We desire, when those tests come, to satisfy God, to please Him. That's just true. Now, when we fail, we know that we confess our sins and He forgives us and all of that, but yet still we don't start out the day going, "God, this is going to be a great day. I am going to sin so many times, and I can't wait to confess." Because I know that you know that's just going to be the, we're just going to have the best day today. I no, always start out by going, "Oh God, please help me to live in such a way that You are pleased when I sin up." But but, but I desire to follow after you, please help me. There's, it's in us. We're wired in a good way to desire that from Him. And so, so Paul says to Timothy, and he really says to all of us, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. That is, when the tests come, when the tests come, that because of your dependence upon Him, because of your faith, because of His grace at work within you, yes, but you present yourself as one to And he says, "Do your best. be diligent. make every effort. See, there's a diligence that's required. God engages us in this. Now I must confess to you, I've had in my notes every Sunday for since I preached from 2 Timothy 2: one, where Paul says to Timothy, "Be strengthened." By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Given that expression, every Sunday, I've had in my notes somewhere to say uh, that when God calls us, the right expression isn't that we're to let go and let God. Right? That's a wonderful expression in some ways. The the, the reason that people have grabbed a hold of it isn't because they're heretics, but but because of the the passage that speaks to casting all our cares upon God. And so that's kind of the, the origination of that expression, let go and let God. The danger of it, the danger of it is that it removes us from the equation. And God never does that. Trust in God doesn't mean that we're utterly removed from that. We are trusting. And because we're trusting, that has implications in our lives. We enter in. Another expression that we often use is, I can't love that person, so Jesus will love them through me. Yeah, I get it. But the way that he'll love them through you is by transforming you to be a lover. We don't get to say, I hate you, but here's some money. You know, I hate you, but I'm going to be nice to you. No, no, no. He works the hate out of us. So that we love. We're engaged in this. Trust doesn't mean... Rest in Christ doesn't mean that I'm out of it. I'm this empty vessel that's just sort of going along, zombie-ish, through life, doing the things of God. <laughs> no, I'm in, I'm engaged. He's engaged. People always say, "Bill, is God working in your life?" Yes. Uh, how's that? Is is that all Him or all You? And I go, "Yes." <laughs> Easy. It's, it's all, it's, he's, work, he's at work in me. We're to be diligent in this. You know the verse I'm going to go to next, Philippians and chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes here, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be diligent about this. Do your best, if you will. Be engaged. Work it out. You've been saved by Jesus and His blood and righteousness. So what does that mean now in your life? It means get on with it. Take that and all that that means and live it out. But He doesn't stop there, fortunately. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for or because... Well, this is how you can do that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means God is engaged and we're engaged in this life in which we live now that he saved us. When he saved us, if you will, it was all him, that is to say, he did it, we couldn't. But now that he has, he's at work. We're now, as the scripture says, born again. We're given new life. Thus, that new life is to live. But again, we don't sleep through this. We don't coast in this. It's not downhill now. Right? We're fully engaged. So he says, do your best. Be diligent. For instance, in Ephesians. In chapter 4. Paul has spent the first three chapters telling them all that Christ has done. One of the things that Christ by the Spirit has done is joined us as believers together. That's a done deal. He's done that. Notice how he puts it then in chapter 4. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, that is, doing your best, same word, eager, or be diligent, eager to maintain the unity of the body, the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. In other words, he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit's done this. Now be engaged. What does that mean? It means you need to work at this. It means you need to be patient with each other. And that's work. That means when we're being aggravated by each other, we live like we're not being. That's work, right? You need to be patient and kind and gentle and humble—all those kinds of things with each other. You see, that's he says. Engage with that. Engage with that kind of thing. Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter. He says, "Fight the good fight of the faith." He said, "This is this is a fight." So engage in all of this. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews, uh, in chapter six. Notice he says, uh, verse. Eleven. It says, "And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That's that same kind of word group of you, or the same earnest, same diligence, doing your best. The same earnest to have the earnestness of the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." It says, "This isn't the time to be sluggish as believers. Get on with it. Live this out. Engage." fully in all of this. The passage I read this morning throughout our time of, of worship is one just like that. It begins in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of the, the power of God that's given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. He says, It's here. You have all that you need for life and go- godliness. And that comes through the knowledge of Him, knowing Him, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises he says you've been given these promises know them you've been given this word know it you've been given this word so that you can be godly everything in this word for life and godliness this begins of course and our coming to faith it's in there to to repent of our sins and to trust in him and then his wisdom and the knowledge that his spirit is with us and, and that we will be strengthened by him and all of that. He says, all that's here. So you, you need to know this word, all these great and precious promises. Because through them, you become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we become deity. But it means the very presence of God in his work is in our lives. Having escaped the corruption um, that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so given all that, if that's all it was, I would take a deep sigh of relief. And I would sit in my... My, my, my lounge chair and just stay there till I die but he says no no it's not he says for this very reason given you have all of that given, given that's what's been done for this very, very reason engage he says make every effort do your best be diligent same stuff to supplement your faith with all of these things in other words get on with it grow mature be after the very character of Christ. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That is, we know that our salvation comes um, because of the grace of God. He's the one who's called us. He's the one who's chosen us. Great. Now make that sure. How do you do that? By living it out. By living it out. So be diligent, he says to Timothy. Timothy. And really, and really to all of us. Be diligent Timothy's calling and the calling of the leaders in the church in Ephesus. They're calling to to present themselves as as approved workers uh, who can stand ultimately in the presence of God because they've rightly handled the word of truth. You see, God calls us to diligence in knowing this truth and living it out. To real diligence. I was thinking about this. I mentioned this woman before, once or twice over the years. Her name was, it was she's passed now, she's died. Her name was Stella, was her first name. I was never allowed to call her that because she was old and I was young, a kid. So I always had to call her Mrs. Franz. Stella France was her name. And a number of years ago, I don't know, Joshua, if you remember this, but a number of years ago... Um, Karen and I and our kids and uh, my mom and dad uh, were back visiting our old hometown where my dad had been born and raised and where I was born and raised until I was 15. And we went to visit Mrs. France. We went to visit her because she had taught my dad in the fifth grade. And she had taught all of my sisters and myself in the fifth grade as well. Not all at the same time. My dad actually graduated from fifth grade uh, much before that. So you can see this kind of thing. Not only did she teach us in the fifth grade, but she also taught us all, my dad included, in elementary school, Sunday school in the church. And so we went to visit her because she was a significant in all of our lives. We all remembered her. And as we went to visit her, she was in her... Oh, goodness, close to 90 at that point. And uh, she had told us that she had just retired from 70 years of singing in the choir at church. She didn't want to retire, but she couldn't get there anymore. And so she was retiring from singing in the choir. While we were there, two, two other people, men, came to see her. For the same reason that we were there to tell her, thank you, that we remembered what she had taught us when we were kids. And it was fascinating to me because my kids were amazed that she sat there and described me to a T when I was a kid. I hadn't seen her for probably 30 years at that time. And yet she knew me and my dad and my sister. And the other two men who came, she talked to them the same way. Just sat there and just kind of laid it I thought, you know, this is diligence. Now there's nothing at all, quite frankly, spectacular about that woman's life. She lived in a little white house. Smaller than probably most of the houses we live in in a little town of a few thousand people that its only claim to fame was that it was home to a U.S. steel mill in the 50s and 60s. And she taught at an elementary school, which she walked to. She she sang and taught at a church that she walked to. But because over the years she took up what God gave her to do, that the whole body of her life was amazing. It was spectacular to think back. How many kids did she teach how to read? How many kids did she teach, as she taught us, with a flannel graph board? The Easter story. I can still hear in my head her saying when Mary came to Jesus after the resurrection... I can still hear her say, Mary. It's still in my head. I can still see the empty flannel graph tomb, you know? I I bet there are hundreds of people who could say that too. Of this one, that's diligent, you see. That's getting out. It isn't spectacular is isn't being Billy Graham. is isn't writing books. It's the dailiness, the ordinariness of walking, give, taking up what God gives you to do. At your job, to be diligent there, to be a good employee, to do the work that you've been called to do. He's called you to do that work. Do it for His glory. Shape the world that you live in by manifesting the fact that Christ has come and He's King and He rules your life. Live it there. Do your best there. Be diligent there, you see. And there are families, as husbands and wives and moms and dads and kids, to be diligent there, you see. So the day would come, when the tests come, whether it's work or in the family or wherever they come, when those tests come, because we're dependent upon him and he's at work in us and we're engaged in this and we're, we're fully, fully, fully engaged in this being diligent that we can, we can hear the very voice of God if you will say, ah, oh, well done. Now we know that it was him and all that but well done. You say, bless you, he says. Those tests that come. I think of Abraham. Great test that he had and that day on Mount Moriah, where he was to take his son, his only son, the child of the covenant, all of his promises, all the promises of God, his whole life were dependent upon that child, Isaac, and he was taken. God said, I want you to sacrifice him. Now, we know that Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day. If Abraham disobeyed, Isaac would live. If Abraham obeyed, God would stay his hand. So... Isaac was fine. Might have had some trauma later on in life when he thought about my dad did tie me to a bunch of, you know, but that's, well, you know, I'm sure he got help for that. But he was safe, at least at that moment in time. And God was saying, there is no more child sacrifice. That doesn't satisfy me. That never satisfies me. It'll be my, my son. You see, child sacrifice somehow was in the guts of people, probably, perhaps even thinking that through, someone must die for us. God said, no, you don't know. In your perversion, you've got that all wrong. Not your kids, mine. And the scripture says that God tested Abraham that day. The Apostle James says that his faith, Abraham's faith, was justified that day. It was proven. It was approved. It met the test. And I think I I, I, want to be like that. That's what I want my life to be. And I hear Paul say to Timothy, live as a worker, as someone who's following after Christ, approved by him. And we know that that approval for any of us depends upon us rightly understanding the scripture. The old King James language in this passage, if, if you memorize that as a kid or you, you know how that's laid out or you've seen that in print, rightly dividing the word of truth. Really, it's better here, I think. It helps us understand the figure of speech there. Uh, rightly handling, rightly understanding, dealing with the scripture well, you see. Uh, to rightly divide didn't mean to cut up the scripture in little pieces and try to piece them back together. It meant to, 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 to cut a straight line. Like if you, were, if you were building a road from point A to point B, go straight. Get right there. Don't meander, you see. That would be a bad road if it meandered and it didn't have to meander. We don't want to take those roads. When our GPS says to do that, we go, I don't like this, you see. So get me there. But it's just a bad route, and so Paul says to Timothy, now when you deal with the scripture, get right to the heart of it, don't, don't mess with this, don't mess with that, but deal, get right to the heart of it, you see, rightly divide, rightly handle, correctly handle this word of truth, that's everything, so make sure you've got that, and you see, so as a church we, we, we try to get that. Try to think that through. So, all of our Bible studies, we tell our Bible studies leaders this is about the scripture. This is about sticking to the text. We, we don't try to do anything fancy. We don't try to do anything trendy. We don't try to tie our Bible studies around particular personalities who may be really great, but we try to stay away from those so we don't get confused by, by those personalities. Tim, a great blessing to you. And we know what one of our elders once said of me. We don't have to get tied up in personalities because Bill doesn't have a personality. <laughs> I think it's in the minutes. He said, thank you. But you see, we don't want to get tied up in all this. It's not about the person. It's about the text. It's about the scripture. It's about God who's speaking to us through it. That's why we, we every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we just take up the next passage. I don't pick them. I pick the books but, you know, uh, that we're going to go through, but, but it's, they're in the Bible. And so uh, we take up the next passage so that whatever we're talking about comes from here, you see. And that's what we're accountable to. Not, not the themes that I think would be important for us or valuable for us. Not, not the topics that I like to talk about or somebody else likes to talk about. We just take them up one by one by one by one by one. However ordinary that is. But you realize, I was looking the other day. I, I preached through a lot of the Bible over the last 20 some years. So, so, so you, you know, it's it just sort of... And that's the key to what you see. Listening. Listening to God. As he speaks to us through his word. What it means to us is what it meant to Timothy, what it meant to the next generation, what it meant to the next generation, what it meant to the next generation. Nothing new, nothing fancy. It's the same word of God, generation to generation to generation. The generation. So we're always checking back, always reading what they said before. We're always going back to the creeds of the faith. We're always going back to the confessions of the faith, saying, "How do they understand this? How do, are we getting back? How do they understand this?" We want to make sure it's not fancy. We don't do any fifty days to anything. We don't do any any trendy kind of this or any. You know, we're just sort of ordinary. Here it is, week by week by week. Why? To protect ourselves from getting off into this and getting off into that. To protect ourselves. you know, We're the ordinary, boring, regular old folks. Get together, read the Bible to each other. One of these days you're going to realize you pay me to read you the Bible. It's a great job. See, that kind of thing. So we look at the life of our church week by week, year by year, you see, to imagine Can you even think the numbers of children that have heard the gospel? The numbers of children that have heard the gospel. Every VBS, they get this little little band thing with little colors on it, you know? Every year they get that. Why? Because they, they need that every year. We don't want to miss anybody. They get it. Oh, yeah, different stories, different whatever, different crafts, but same gospel. Year by year by year. The memorization that we do. We teach the kids the scriptures. How many yagers, youth of grace, you see. How many women in the context of Betty was telling our church secretary, Betty was telling us the other day that she got an email from somebody in Australia, I think, who who said they had watched, they were wondering, praying, how can we teach new believers to read through the Bible? And they somehow got onto our website, got onto a little video deal from our women's Bible study and teaching through the scripture. And they said, wow, this is it. All right? But frankly, I don't care about that because I. I'm here when women come to hear the scripture. And they go, wow. Look at this. Year after, year after year after year after year after year after year after year. Same Bible. Same stuff. Continues to meet the same needs. Year by year by year. If you think about it, over, over the lifetime of a, of a church community. Do you realize the diligence that that takes from those teachers and those leaders? People who see themselves my Mrs. France saw herself as a fifth grade Sunday school teacher. That was her identity. She would never think not to teach fifth grade Sunday school until she couldn't anymore. It wasn't, well, I'll do it for a couple of years and take a year off because, you know, that's just whatever. No, 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 no. That was who she was. She could not teach Sunday school. She had to. It was just DNA. Holy Spirit, DNA. So she was diligent about that. The women who lead Bible studies, the men who lead Bible studies, the people who come, the diligence in in doing that, the people who work with the youth group, the diligence in doing that, being able to have this place, the diligence in doing that and bringing that about so that we can have for our community a place not only for now but for our kids and only for our kids but for the generation later. Can you only imagine the numbers of people, first of all, that have gone through our doors because we live in such a, a community with university students and others that have gone through our door. And they're all over the place, and who will come to worship God. Diligence. But we must rightly handle the word of truth. The assurance we have is this that God has placed his seal upon us, that this foundation, the church, The support and pillar of the truth that God has said, I know who are mine. And then He says to us, Those who are mine, you'll know you're mine, because you're the ones who're going to want to flee from iniquity, flee from ungodliness. Well, we'll take that up next week. Play with me, please. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would get it, and that we would be those who are diligent. In our handling of the scripture. But not only that, Father, diligent in living that out. We take hold of that which is true that you have given to us from your word, God. We'd take hold of that and we'd engage with you through that and we would live it out. Father, please be with us. Help us. Father, I pray that be true for us all on good days and bad. I pray for those who are suffering, who find themselves in great difficulty. That Father, this word of God would penetrate their own hearts and they would believe and trust and they would engage in that and understand that you are for them and if you are for them, nothing, no one can be against them and that their sins forgiven in Jesus uh, cause them then to be united with you, thus you as merciful and faithful high priest will come and will help them. And Father, I pray that that would be sufficient for them until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, for us all in various walks of life, in various difficulties, I I pray, Father, that as we we go to work, as we tend to our families, as we tend to our friendships, Father, we live in such a way that all in those spheres would know that the King has come, that Jesus has come, and that we belong to Him, and that we would manifest His rule and righteousness in our own lives. Father, be with us as a church that would never let down that we would continue to be diligent about these things to which you've called us most especially in the guarding and teaching and of your word. And Father, that, that would always characterize us when people would come here they'd say, yes, we can trust this people, we can trust this church because they lead me to God because they're faithful to his word. Father, I pray that it always be true. If it isn't, I pray that you deal with us as dramatically as necessary to cleanse us. Father, even now, by your mercy and grace, we pledge ourselves to learn from you and to follow after you, that you might be glorified through our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. And please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and together let us sing.
1: Your glorious cause, O oh God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray. Your kingdom. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth, till your sovereign work on earth is done. Let your kingdom come. Give us your strength, O God, and courage to speak. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Lord, use us as you are. Whatever the test, by grace will preach your gospel till our dying breath. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Your song be heard everywhere on earth till your sovereign work on earth is done. Let your kingdom come, let your will. Done. Let your kingdom come. You are dismissed.
0: the first service, yeah.